Great. So, we are starting our series on the book of Acts. So, something, something a little new. Um, this is the first Sunday that we're going to be looking at this book. And so, I'm just going to give a bit of a brief introduction as to what exactly um, the book of Acts is about. And then we're also going to look at the first 12 verses, which we already read together, um, and just see what they teach us about the kingdom of God. So, to start with, I just want to read this quote that opens up one of the first chapters in a commentary I was reading this week. It's by a theologian, Justo Gonzalez, and he says, The book of Acts is a call to Christians to be open to the action of the Spirit, not only leading them to confront values and practices in society that, they may, that, they, that may need to be subverted, but perhaps even leading them to subvert or question practices and values within the church itself. So, I have a bit of a special relationship with the book of Acts. Um, this is a book that has probably caused me the most trouble in my faith, but is also the one that I have found that I treasure the most in the Bible. Um, it's a book of passion and joy, one of messiness and sorrow, and it's a book that recounts the earliest days of the church, and it will challenge you in new ways if you let it. And so I definitely resonate with Gonzalez's quote here. Um, now, the book of Acts is the fifth book found in our New Testament. Um, it, it continues the story of Jesus and his followers. And in the Gospels, we read about the life, the teaching, um, the miracles, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of Mary, the Son of God. And in the Gospels, Jesus is given the title, the Christ, which means anointed one. And that's because he, like the kings and prophets of old, was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Um, and that same spirit is also promised to be poured out on Jesus' disciples. So in the four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we see that through Jesus' ministry, and then ultimately his death, he confronts sin and death and the powers of evil. And instead of allowing them to crush him, God's spirit then, the same spirit that, fell, uh, that was anointing on him when he was baptized, raises Jesus up from the grave, up from the tomb. And this was partially done as proof that Jesus is God's son. He is the anointed one. He's the chosen ruler and that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And the first witnesses of this proof was just a group of women on an Easter Sunday morning. They didn't call it Easter Sunday at that point, but it, it wasn't East, the very first one. And their testimony then causes this ripple effect as the good news of Jesus is passed on uh, from person to person, and it's the good news that our anointed king, the Christ, is not dead, he's alive, and that followers of him and participate in that new life with him. And so the Gospel of Luke ends with Jesus' departure. And in fact, the book of Acts kicks off right where the Gospel of Luke ends because the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are both written by the same person. So they're written by Luke, a doctor. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate the way that we've ordered our Bibles. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you have John in between Luke and Acts. And that's kind of like, it's, the purpose of that is to make sure that John is set aside as like, hey, this is a unique gospel. It's very different from the other ones. But it means that rarely do we read 
Luke and then go all the way into Acts. We, we don't always make those connections and those themes that Luke is trying to bring out and to engage with us. And so I've listed out, I've put a, a short list of a, some of the themes to kind of watch for as we go through the book of Acts. Some of them are kind of more heavier than others, but so essentially um, in this book we're going to see that followers of Jesus, both men and women, devote themselves to prayer, experience the power of the Holy Spirit. They're aided by angels, they're selling and caring for the poor, and they're also experiencing suffering from leaders for preaching in Jesus' name and living out of their new kingdom identity as the priesthood of God that's not bound to the walls of the temple. And while this, uh, while this book of Acts is called that because it's, called, uh, it's short for Acts of the Apostles, really it's about the acts that Jesus continues to do by his spirit through the church. And so now that we've kind of covered over some of the themes to kind of watch out for um, and just have a bit of an introduction, let's dive into Acts chapter 1. And today you're going to see themes of the Holy Spirit, angels, and also even suffering. So it says in verse, uh, we've already read this first bit, but we'll just take it in little chunks. So it says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days." So here we have Luke addressing a guy named Theophilus, which, if you've read uh, the Gospel of Luke, that's also who he addresses in the Gospel of Luke. So we don't really know who Theophilus is. This is like the only time that he's mentioned. And his name is also interesting because it means in Greek, lover of God. So we don't know. Could this be uh, a, a real person who um, maybe helped fund the writing of these, uh, of these scrolls, these books that Luke was writing? Because... Back in those days, it cost a lot of money to, uh, to write a scroll and to research and to do all these things. And so, but it could also be that maybe he's, maybe this is actually Luke talking to us, the church, us as the lovers of God. So we don't, we don't quite know. But anyways, regardless, he starts by just digging into summarizing a little bit of his first account, the first book. And Luke reminds Theophilus that his gospel is about the actions and teachings of Jesus from the beginning of his ministry up to his ascension. It's about what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. And oftentimes I think we summarize the gospel as just about Jesus' death on the cross and maybe his resurrection, we might mention that. But here for Luke, the gospel is what Jesus did as a whole, not just his death, not just his resurrection, but all that he did and all that he taught. And all the way up until the point where he was taken up, as it says at the very end. Um, and now that refers, that taken up refers to the very last scene in the, in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus raises his hands. As he's raising his hands, he's blessing his disciples, and then he just starts to float up into the sky. Um, and he disappears. And it's this really strange scene. And 
one of the things that I've always kind of thought is, hey, if Jesus can like disappear and reappear into locked rooms, which is what we see in the Gospel of Luke, why did he do this whole float up into the sky thing? What's, what's the point of that? And we're actually going to look at that question in a few verses and, and answer that because I do think that there's something, something here that um, is important about why he did that. So, but before Jesus' ascension, Luke describes what takes place during the 40 days prior. So it describes how after he had suffered, right, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. And so here we see that Jesus, he shows his hands, he shows his feet, he allows his disciples to come close and to touch him. And he does this because he knows that we all wrestle with doubt. We all have those moments where we just can't believe the message of the good news. It, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard for it to sink in, and so, but Jesus needed his disciples to know that he's not just some ghost, come back to haunt them, a friendly one, but, you know, but he's actually, he is back in person, in the flesh. His body didn't see decay, and he is present with them. And so, he doesn't draw away from them, but he stands with them because hope is embodied, right? And this is hope that you can hear, hope that you can see, hope that can pull you into an embrace and say, peace be with you, don't be afraid. And as Luke puts it, it says, he, after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. And that part about suffering, Luke doesn't say after he had died. And that's because for Luke, in both of his books, the importance is the suffering of the Messiah, not just his death, because just as Jesus suffered, so too we're going to see that his church is going to suffer. And as we read through the book of Acts, there's going to be bold followers of Jesus who are going to stand before authorities, and they're going to unashamedly proclaim the name of Jesus in the face of, of suffering and death. And as the Apostle Paul says later in his letters, he says, I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. So Jesus, after his suffering, he continues to teach his followers for 40 days, and what he talks about is the kingdom of God. It's not, he's not, he doesn't hold this seminar on how to be a good parent or a conference on end times theology or a, or a, or a music festival to re-engage the youth. No, these 40 days are about the kingdom of God. And I wish that we could have sat there at his feet and just got, been able to soak in that teaching because it would have been so good. And thankfully, Luke gives us some brief glimpses into this, and we see kind of at the very end um, in verse 4 there, we see uh, a bit of one of them. And so here Jesus tells his followers to wait, to not yet leave the city, but to wait for what God has promised. And this promise is the Holy Spirit. And it's the same spirit that fell on Jesus at his baptism, the same spirit that raised them up from the dead. And because through John, people were submerged into the waters of repentance. But it's in Jesus that people would be submerged into the waters of the Holy Spirit. And this is where I come to my first point, is that the kingdom of God is the church submerged in God's spirit. We're not meant to just dip our toes and now and then into the pool of the Spirit. But we are meant to be wholly submerged. And I, I think I'll be the first to admit that this is definitely sc a scary thought because I like my physical realities. You know, I like things to be concrete. I know this music stand is here because I can feel it. I can touch it. It's great. 
But as for the Holy Spirit in this room, I can't see him or, or necessarily feel him. Sometimes you can sense him, but for me, that is scary because that means that this is, the Spirit is something that I can't control. It's something that I can't tangibly grasp. And yet, the Spirit of God moving in this room of believers, that's what the kingdom is about. And I think this is, the, the Spirit's power for me, I think sometimes, why I'm sometimes scared of it is because it gets sensationalized in the church. Either that or it gets totally muted, right? And so it's, it, can be, it can be uncomfortable, it can be scary, but ultimately the Spirit is not a burden to bear he is a privilege to carry, and so I need to be okay with not just staying in the shallow end or in the kiddie pool where the water is uncomfortably warm, but actually diving into the deep end, going where my feet can't touch the bottom and where I can feel him all around me. And that's what the kingdom of God is. It's the deep end of the pool. And so Luke continues in verse 6. If we go all the way to verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here we see that the disciples, they wanted two things. First, they wanted the kingdom of God to come now, and second, they wanted the kingdom of God to be about Israel. But Jesus responds by saying it's not about them knowing when the appointed time of the kingdom is, nor is the kingdom of God simply about restoring the province of Israel. In fact, and this is my second point here, the kingdom of God is the church throughout the world. The disciples wanted to know a timeline. They wanted to know a chart to figure things out so that they could confidently walk with Jesus, which is fair. But they also thought that God's kingdom was just about a small patch of land in the Middle East, but God has a much bigger plan in mind, one that doesn't fit their timeline or their geography. Jesus' words in verse 8 show that the good news of the kingdom is not simply for the Jews, but it is for the whole world. God's spirit was going to fall on the disciples to empower them to share the good news of repentance and redemption and the reign found in Jesus not just locally to their fellow Jewish family and friends, but also globally as it moved beyond Judea into the land of the Samaritans, who were like enemies of the Jewish people, and then to the rest of the known world. And as we read through the book of Acts, we're eventually going to see that this gospel gets spread all the way to Rome. And this movement doesn't just end in Acts chapter 28, because the message of the gospel continued to spread past Rome. And we're proof of that. The Church of Northsite is a community of believers who, because someone in the early church had the Spirit fall on them and decided to leave their country and their people to go to the land that God would show them. And they did that. And God's kingdom is about the church spreading beyond the walls of our homes, the walls of this building that we gather in, and reaching out into our community. It is about allowing God's Spirit to empower us to boldly serve and share with people from around the world about what Jesus has done in our lives. So let's continue reading. In verse 9 it says, After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So here Luke describes that final scene of the gospel where Jesus ascends into the heavens. I remember that question that I had before is like, why does Jesus just float up into the sky? Well, here, if we, are, if we, if we look back to the Old Testament, there is a story that kind of mirrors what's going on here. And it's the story of a prophet named Elijah. Now, in the last days, Elijah knew that God was planning on taking him away. And so, with his disciple, Elijah crosses through the waters of the Jordan um, and goes into the wilderness. And Jesus, too, also, right, began his ministry by entering through the waters of the Jordan and going into the wilderness. And before Elijah is taken away, he says to his disciple, tell me what I can do for you because I'm taken from you. And his disciple replies, please let me inherit two shares of your spirit. Elijah answers him, you've asked something very difficult. If you see me being taken from you, you will have it. If you won't, if not, you won't. And then what happens next is we have these flaming chariots of fire that come down, right? Pick Elijah up and bring him up and carry him up into heaven. And his mantle falls down and his disciple is left alone. But the disciple picks up the mantle and then right away he starts performing miraculous wonders and signs um, that, that uh, are huge. And the people who witness these signs say to him, say about him, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And so in Jesus' being carried up to heaven, he is reenacting the story of Elijah. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus in his ministry is going to fill his disciples, and they, like Elisha, are going to be doing amazing miracles and signs in the pattern of the teach, their teacher before them. And today, we, the church, we get to follow in Elisha's steps, too, when we are clothed in the power of the Spirit and sent out into our communities to allow the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit to help bless those around us. Now, granted, there's one big difference between Elijah and Jesus. We don't see a chariot of fire in, in, in Acts. But instead, Jesus is carried by a cloud. It says that a cloud took him away. And Jesus, in this, is actually fulfilling another story of the Old Testament. One where the, the, it's, it's of a, a character named Daniel, which we, you might know him from Daniel in the lion's den, but one of his less popular stories is when he has this dream. And in this dream, he sees a heavenly courtroom and sees God, um, the Ancient of Days, destroying the forces of evil. And right after evil is defeated, Daniel says this. In verse 13 of chapter 7, I believe, of Daniel, it says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And if we look at the Gospels, the title that Jesus calls himself most frequently is the Son of Man. Um, and here we see the Son of Man is coming on the clouds, approaching God's throne room, 
And what does God give him? He gives him all authority to rule a kingdom of people from every nation and language. And by being carried up on a cloud, not a chariot, Jesus is telling us what he did next. What Jesus does after he vanishes into the heavens is he enters into God's celestial courtroom and being given all authority in heaven and on earth. So that's what Jesus is doing. But what are the disciples doing in, in, in the gospel of Acts, or the, the book of Acts? They're, they are staring up at the sky, and they're not moving. And it actually takes God sending two angels down to kind of get them to snap them out of their staring contest with heaven. The angels have to ask, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This question reveals that the disciples need to stop standing still. They need to get their head out of the clouds and refocus. There is work to be done, which leads me to my final point, is that the kingdom of God is the church on the move. In the book of Luke, the disciple Peter had wanted to stand still on a mountain before. It's the mountain of transfiguration. He had wanted, when he saw Jesus' glory, let's just build a tent for Jesus so that we can worship and, and, and be with him here. But the kingdom of God is not simply about setting a mountain and having that be a place of worship and then maybe gathering people from all nations to come to this one mountain. It's not about that. The kingdom of God is God throughout the world, not just localized to the Mount of Olives, waiting for Jesus to come back. So instead, they were meant to hear the angel's words and to stop staring and to take that Sabbath journey from the Mount of Olives back to Jerusalem. This was how they honored God with their Sabbath, not by building a shrine and localizing worship, but by going home and proving that God is not just found climbing a mountain and waiting, but God is found in our homes and our communities of people that we interact with. We are called to move with him. And as we do, we, like Elijah, will be clothed with power from on high. The Holy Spirit will overshadow us, and the power of the Most High will come upon us so that we can bear witness that the Holy One, Jesus the carpenter from Nazareth, is the Son of Man and the Son of God. And as we continue our journey through this book of Acts, we will see men and women in the early church fully submerged in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see them go into the world with that power, and they're not going to be standing still. But what about us? What do we do with this opening of Acts? What do we do with what it shows us that the kingdom of God is like? Well, if the kingdom of God is the church submerged in God's spirit, we might start by asking ourselves, how far into the pool have I gone? How can I go deeper? And what might be scaring me or preventing me from going further? And if the kingdom of God is the church throughout the world, we can maybe ask ourselves, what am I doing to bring diversity into this kingdom? Am I praying for believers around the world? Am I interacting with people from other cultures in my life? And if the kingdom of God is the church on the move, we can ask ourselves, have I stopped moving? Is my faith and journey with God standing still? What are the things that are distracting me from connecting with him? And can I bring, maybe bring him into those distractions? And so as we go into this week, let's submerge ourselves in the spirit. Let's experience how the good news impacts the world. And let's keep moving toward Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that we have the book of Acts. We thank you that... Um, you are a God that moves, you are a God that is uh, one of power, and that you share that power with us. God, we know that you can strengthen us and give us boldness so that we can proclaim your name um, to our families and to our friends, um, 
in conversations with our coworkers and maybe our fellow students, God, I just pray that you would be allowing us to go in your spirit, to share, to share what it's like to be a part of your kingdom, God, and to share this new life. Um, and so, God, I pray that you would give us the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. And God, I ask that you would let us, let us be aware of the gifts of the spirit, things that you've gifted us with that we can help um, with building up your church and uh, with blessing this community that we live in. In your name, amen.